What I'd like to talk about this evening is the Brahma Viharas. And this is a Brahma Vihara talk in relationship to our mindfulness practice and how the two come together, intertwine. But to begin with, what I'd like to start with is actually dukkha, the first noble truth. The first noble truth is that there is dukkha, that there is this unsatisfactoriness with what is happening in the moment, or a wanting for what's happening in this moment to be different than it actually is. And the Buddha doesn't say that life is dukkha, that life is suffering or unsatisfactoriness, but that there is unsatisfactoriness. And this is due to our craving and our ignorance, our just not seeing clearly, really. I'm wondering how many of you experienced dukkha just in the last sit that we were all here together. <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> I have a pretty good idea. Yeah. And so imagine how many of those sits there are if you were to put that 30 minutes, 45 minutes within a lifetime. You know, we have a lot of dukkha that we experience. And that's not to bum you out, it's just that this is the first noble truth, that there is dukkha in this world. And so what we do with that dukkha is we bring our practice to it. We meet it with our attention. A few days ago, I was going on a hike I had some extra time in the afternoon, and so I decided I'd do the, the bridge hike that goes way up into the hills here and then comes back around. And uh, those of you who have done it, it, it's pretty lengthy and a lot of uphill, and I was feeling really good about it. And on my way down, uh, I, was, I had a pretty good pace and... Um, was paying attention to the scenery around me, but was more into just the movement of it all and feeling good about that. And then all of a sudden, I was stopped in my tracks because there was a snake that was laying across the trail. And it was just one of those little gardener snakes, really harmless, really beautiful. And it was just stretched out across my path. And I stopped, and it was this really kind of yummy moment of, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this here in, in the beautiful nature that surrounds us, just having this moment of connection with the nature that was there in front of me, which was this beautiful snake. And so I just stood there and paid attention to it, paid attention to my body and how I was feeling. And there was this deep pleasantness that was here. And I felt aware, awake in that moment. And then the next moment came. And in that next moment, I decided I needed to keep going. (laughs) And so I went from this very open, spacious, connected moment, and then in a mind moment, a second, my mind decided I needed something else than what was happening in this moment. And so I was evaluating my situation. How is it going to get around the snake? And I suddenly felt kind of uncomfortable about jumping over the snake and going around the snake. Uh, On either side of the trail, there was 
pretty high brush and I started thinking about the ticks and going around the snake was probably not a good idea because there's ticks and I don't want to get Lyme disease and that's probably not a good idea. I could jump over the snake, but then all of a sudden, even though I know that this is a garden snake and there's nothing poisonous about it, it's not about to try and bite me, in my mind flashes, what if it's a rattlesnake? I know this isn't true, but now I have fear coming up about ticks and rattlesnakes, neither of which may be true in this moment. And so you can see what my mind is doing. It went from this really beautiful, spacious, mindful moment, and then in a second, I'm stuck in the dukkha. And you can see how this particular dukkha just creates more dukkha. The dukkha that creates more dukkha. This is samsara. This is the perpetuation of our not seeing things clearly. That's exactly what was happening in this moment. Luckily, though, I caught it. I caught it. I saw what I was doing. Not only was I fabricating all of this fear and wanting and not wanting and needing to get going and here's my agenda and this is actually in my way now, this beautiful snake that I was so connected with is now in my way. But I had nowhere that I needed to go. There was nothing that I needed to go and do. This rushing and um, expectation that I needed to continue on my way was also fabricated. I had no meetings. There was, there, were, there was no one I needed to go talk to. All of this was created in my mind. But I saw it. And in that moment, that dukkha that was creating more dukkha became dukkha that was creating freedom from dukkha because I saw it with my practice, with mindfulness. And that's what we're doing here, right? So we have all of these dukkha moments, and we're meeting them with our practice. Actually, one of the uh, more direct um, translations of dukkha is friction to come into friction with the moment. And this is how dukkha feels to me, in fact. There's this feeling of coming up against what is here in the moment. Maybe you've experienced this too, just the tightness in the moment that's created when we think it should be going other than it is or we feel we should be other than we are or someone else should be doing things differently. And it's this feeling of friction as opposed to just being with. This being with sometimes is just so simple. The simpleness of just being there with the snake. No expectations, really nothing to do, nowhere to go. Just being Sometimes it's just so simple to just be right here with the truth of how things are that we're often doing this. We're often looking somewhere else for our freedom. What's here right now isn't enough. Or that's the story that we have. That's the habit that we seem to to believe in. 
that what's right here isn't it. Especially if what's here right now is unpleasant or isn't going how we'd like it. So oftentimes I imagine, and perhaps this is just my own assumption because I've, I've sat this retreat a couple of times and have uh, been sitting here with you this last week and I notice the different things that come through my mind. And when my sitting goes really well and it's concentrated and I'm paying attention and there's relaxation in the body and I can feel this sense of ease and, yeah, my practice is really good. That was a really good sit, right? This is where it's at. This is where awakening is. And then when I have a sitting where there's body pain and mental agitation and uh, memories and thoughts that I don't want to see, they're disturbing and I, I don't want them and they shouldn't be here, and I can't stop moving. And this is a really crummy sit. You ever do that coming out of the hall? Well, that was worthless. <laughs> and so we have this expectation that this freedom that we're looking for requires it to be pleasant and to be looking a certain way. But actually, in that discomfort, in whatever the moment is producing, Right here, just being with it is where our practice is. It's not somewhere else. It's not maybe if I just grabbed another cushion or maybe if I just walked instead or maybe if I hadn't watched that movie right before I came on retreat, I wouldn't be replaying over and over in my head. No, all of that's included but it's hard to stay with it. How do we stay with the difficulty? How do we face the dukkha with our attention and sustain it there? Everything in us tells us to do otherwise. It's completely counterintuitive to be with the dukkha. But of course, this is where awakening comes from. Thich Nhat Hanh has a beautiful, pithy phrase No mud, no lotus. No mud, no lotus. So that crummy sit, it's just the mud. It's exactly where our insight, when we can be with it, when we can relax into it, when we can allow the heart to open towards it, it's exactly where the growth and the uh, blooming of that insight, that awakening, that freedom will come from. But how do we stay with it? The how is what interests me. So I'll tell you uh, a story from the suttas, and I I have a feeling that maybe this story has already been told, but that's just fine, because then you'll really get to know it. (laughs) It's a good story. This is about where the metta sutta you've been chanting actually came from, where its origins are. So at the time of the Buddha, and actually still today, practicing monks and nuns take uh, three to four months of intensive retreat time during what they call the rains retreat. 
And this is normally done during the rainy season. And so at the time of the Buddha, his monks and nuns would come to him and ask for instruction for this period of time of practice. And they were given their instructions on how to practice, and then they would disperse out into the countryside to find where their dwelling would be for the next four months. And this particular grouping, large grouping of monks, went off and found this incredible, prestigious, uh, pristine, wooded area that just seems so ideal right at the foot of the Himalayas. And they checked it out and, and found that there were a number of lay people that lived nearby whom were very happy to have the monks there and were excited to support them during their rains retreat with food and anything that they were needing. In fact, they even offered to build uh, them kutis or, or small huts for them to live in. So it was the perfect environment, the perfect amount of support. Um, couldn't be better. So the monks settled in, and they spent their days and their nights at the, at the trunks of, the, of these beautiful, uh, ancient, tall, majestic trees that inhabited the woods that they were staying in. And what they didn't know was that these woods were already inhabited by uh, tree spirits. And these kind of magical beings were at first okay with the monks staying there. Uh, they, They figured they would be there for a few days and then that they would leave, and so they were very accommodating and um, uh, stayed out of their way. And then a few days went by, and the tree spirits realized that these guys weren't going anywhere. And suddenly this was a problem. They felt like they were kind of being pushed out of their home, so they got together and decided that they would get rid of the monks, and they would do this by scaring the monks, by bringing fear into their mind and into their hearts. And they did this by producing in the monks' minds um, uh, uh, scary or horrific images. Uh, They also made uh, frightening sounds throughout the the trees and produced um, disgusting smells. And so this was extremely disturbing to the monks. Now we can take this story very literally. I, I don't know. Um, we can also take it as a metaphor for the things that arise in our own practice, the things that scare us, the unknown places that uh, we might be afraid to stay with, with our attention, the parts of our practice that are uncomfortable, or the parts of ourselves that are uncomfortable to see. All the stuff in the shadows that we have a sense is there, but we're afraid to take a good look. There can be a lot of fear and discomfort in staying with uh, the difficulty. And so the, what was happening for the monks was really disturbing to them, and they actually decided they needed to leave, which um, was against their vow 
uh, to the Buddha to stay in one place for the rains retreat, but they decided that they just couldn't stay any longer and they would have to find the Buddha to get his advice. And so they all left and they, they found the Buddha and told him what was going on and asked him to please find them a different place to stay. And so the Buddha and all of his wisdom and, and, uh, and insight, he, he told them there was no better place to practice and awaken but where they were. So again, we can take this as a metaphor. There's no better place to awaken from than right here. And so he told the monks they have to go back. They have to go back and they need to practice there. There's no other place. But he said that in doing this, he would send them along um, with the what is now the Metta Sutta. And you've been chanting this, or many of you have been chanting this uh, since you got here, and so you're very familiar with it. But I thought I would read it to you. I think that Sometimes there can be um, a deepening in, in listening when the sutta is actually read out loud. So I'm going to read it to you. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing... In gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. 
So the monks memorized this metta hymn and chanted it back into the woods and chanted it under the trees. And the tree spirits listened and were so moved by the words of the monks. It was meaningful for them, much as I think it's been meaningful to many of you as you've been sitting here at night chanting this all together. And I know that some of you have even uh, brought it deeply into your practice and have found times where this has been a great refuge. And so the story goes that not only did the tree spirits allow the monks to stay, but they protected the monks and their practice and made sure that they were safe and uh, that the woods were calm and quiet and most ideal for their practice. And then, of course, by the end, they all awoken and became arhats and lived happily ever after. (laughs) So these heart practices are really powerful. One of the beautiful powers of the heart when it's fully developed or even when it's being developed is that it allows us to uh, stay with the difficulty. It allows us to return to the parts of ourselves and our experience that are just uncomfortable or unsatisfactory. It allows us to meet it with our attention. There was a time at the very beginning of my practice that um, I decided I really needed to go to Asia and practice. And so I did. I went to Thailand. And I ended up, not on purpose, but I ended up sitting my first metta retreat there. Um, This was at Swan Mok, which is down in the lower part of the the country. Uh, And... I, I sat a, it was a retreat for Westerners, uh, so it was taught in English, and it was in a um, retreat center that was built off of um, Ajahn Buddhadasa's uh, monastery. When I got there, I um, had never sat a retreat before. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I just knew I had to do it. We were split up, the men and women, and put into more of, uh, I wouldn't say residential halls. (laughs) I'd say more like barracks. Um, They were these (laughs) cinder block buildings, and the beds were actually concrete slabs with very thin grass mats on top of it. We were all given a blanket, a um, mosquito netting, and a wood pillow, which was designed specifically so that you wouldn't oversleep. (laughs) It worked. (laughs) It was very effective. Um, I spent the first night, actually, because everything was on generators and lights were out really early. Uh, I spent the first night by candlelight sewing up the holes in my mosquito net with dental floss, thinking, this is great. (laughs) This is exactly where I want to (laughs) be. And as the the days went on, 
we were exposed to many different practices. Every day we had a variety of monks and nuns that would come and teach us different practices. And, uh, you know, one monk was teaching us mindfulness, another monk was teaching us uh, jhana practices, which I had no idea, I didn't understand what he was talking about. Um, It sounded neat, but seemed like probably not what I was going to do on this particular retreat. And then there was a nun who would come every day and teach metta. And there was something about uh, the metta that just allowed me to relax in a way that the other practices weren't allowing me to. Just, I think, mostly because I was so, I was actually quite uncomfortable. Um, It was the hottest time of year because it was the cheapest plane tickets. I just didn't have a clue. And uh, so it was really hot. It was very buggy. Um, uh, The food was pretty minimal and sometimes... um, uh, just unrecognizable. <laughs> and um, I was just really uncomfortable. I was really in a lot of dukkha. And the metta practice just seemed like a place that I could um, settle in, a practice I could settle into. So I began to recite the metta phrases in my sittings and in my walkings. And over a few days, what I started to notice was the conditions didn't change. The heat was still there, the mosquitoes were there, um, biting ants still there, um, wood pillow still there. Uh, But my attitude towards the difficulty began to change. It It began to change so much that I actually stopped seeing it as difficulty or I stopped seeing it as dukkha. It was no longer being experienced in this way. And I moved through the retreat reciting these metta phrases, um, not realizing it so much at the time, but actually quite protected by the hindrances. My heart and mind were not um, being moved by the difficulty. This is part of the the um, power of these practices of the Brahma Viharas. This was me practicing metta, but this can be done with any of the Brahma Viharas. When the heart and mind are at ease and not tainted by the hindrances, not tainted by greed, hatred, and confusion, delusion, The natural inclination of the heart and mind is metta. It's the natural inclination, the natural experience towards whatever the experience is, is metta. And then when we see difficulty, the natural inclination of a heart filled with metta is compassion. It naturally moves in that direction. We don't have to think about it. We just move towards compassion. Our heart quivers and recognizes the difficulty without closing down and without getting overwhelmed. The same with joy and happiness. When we see joy and happiness or we recognize something that just makes us delighted, 
the heart just moves naturally into sympathetic joy. It's just the most appropriate response. And then what protects all of that is equanimity, allowing it to stay balanced and stabilized, allowing us to sometimes even um, experience a deep understanding and openness of heart towards whatever is here in our experience, knowing that this is just how things are. I think Carol was pointing quite a bit to this. This is just how things are. So that's easy to say, I think, um, and, but maybe not so easy to do, especially when there's a lot of difficulty. And I will just say that that metta retreat, it was very blissful for me, but I've had uh, plenty of dukkha since on and off retreat. Um, so it doesn't always work that way, but um, it's just wanting, I just wanted to share it with you so that you could see that there, there's this great possibility within these practices. We do cultivate them separately sometimes. You know, we have the Brahma Vihara hour here in this retreat where we come and we were purposely cultivating the heart in this particular time frame. Um, And that's really helpful, actually. It's really great to purposely cultivate these qualities within ourselves. But it's not exclusive, of course, to that period of time. And it's not a separate practice from our mindfulness practice. In fact, the way that I am understanding practice right now in myself is that there is no separation. That when my mind is meeting the dukkha, the compassion, the equanimity, the metta is right there meeting it with it. That they go hand in hand. Sometimes this is really difficult, especially when we're facing something that just seems really unjust. How does the heart stay open towards something that seems really unjust or unfair or harmful? I'll give you kind of a minor example of something that happened to me a number of years ago. I was driving through um, a neighborhood that's just about five minutes away from my own uh, in Oakland, California. And I was at a stoplight with my husband in the car and um, the oncoming traffic in the other direction, there was a center divide that was separating Um, the different directions of traffic. And the center divide, there was nothing necessarily that special about it. It had a few shrubs in it and some dirt and wasn't really well watered or taken care of, but it was there. And we were at this stoplight, and I noticed that um, in the other direction, the car on the opposite side, she uh, was also stopped at the stoplight she opened her car door and unloaded garbage into the center divide. 
And I just went, oh, <laughs> I don't think I actually said anything. I just made a noise, like a grunt of disgust. Oh, and all sorts of things was going through my mind at that moment about that person, about what they were doing. And my husband in his, in his deep wisdom uh, caught it, uh, my disgust, and said, she does it because she doesn't understand. She does it because she doesn't understand. And it was so, um, it was such a bubble burster for me in that moment of intense aversion and disgust. And we have this for different reasons, right? We see things in this world that we think, this can't be, this isn't okay. You know, whether it's um, people mistreating our earth or littering our community or, or treating each other in horrible ways, horrible acts being done uh, around the world. And there's this feeling of disgust and aversion. Of course, of course. She does it because she doesn't understand. This beautiful truth, it just hit me right in the heart. It really popped this bubble of aversion and disgust. Because of course she doesn't understand. Why would she do it otherwise? If we truly understood how our actions affected others, that, our, that the garbage was affecting the earth, that it was affecting the community we were in, um, that it was affecting herself uh, by doing such an act. Um, of course, if she truly understands, she wouldn't have done that. And so my heart just went straight to compassion. I was able to meet that moment with compassion. And then compassion for myself, I got really wrapped up in that. And it seemed really justified. Of course it did. Compassion for myself for not really seeing clearly that, of course, she doesn't really understand. And neither did I in that moment. My own ignorance. Compassion for that. So instead of, you know, getting down on her, getting down on myself... Uh, judging the situation in a way that's just not really helpful, uh, the heart leapt to compassion. And then equanimity. As I looked at the center divide and realized that it was full of garbage, just covered in trash. And that, you know, maybe this was something that was a regular routine for people. Or maybe just no one has bothered in a long time to care for this area of the community. And it's not to say that we can't do something about it, right? It's not to say that we all become doormats because we're Buddhist (laughs) or that we're practicing these heart practices. We can move from compassion we can make a difference. We can, we can educate our communities about our environment. We can educate our communities about our community. We can engage people through compassion. And in that moment, there was great equanimity that this and this is true and this is happening. 
and there's garbage in the center divide. This is what's happening. And the heart can hold all of it. When the heart can hold all of it, awareness can hold all of it. We can be fully present with these parts of reality that seem really yucky or that seem impossible to be with. And so we can see in this example that even with whether it's a difficult person or a difficult situation, with a heart that is practiced in and full of the Brahma Viharas, we can meet it. We can stay with. No mud, no lotus. This is where our awakening comes from. It's sometimes said that metta and the Brahma Viharas is like a gentle rain falling indiscriminately over everything. Can we do that? Can we meet all of our experiences with this openness of heart, with this kind awareness, this friendliness, meeting whatever is there, with our kind attention? Can we hold each other in a way that is um, without limit, without limit of our heart? Can we see our own struggle, our own dukkha in another? This is a quote by Thich Nhat Hanh, who I think is such a beautiful embodiment of the Brahma Viharas. And uh, as I think many of you know, has been really ill lately. He's been on my mind quite a bit. And he says, you are me, I am you. Isn't it obvious that we are, isn't it obvious that we inter-are? You are me, I am you. Isn't it obvious that we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage inside myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace and you are in this world to bring me joy. Such deep possibility here. So what I move to do is actually dedicate our time right now uh, dedicate the goodness of our practice. This is something that I always do, we always do, at our our sangha in Berkeley. And I feel like it's this movement that, and and a time of reflection, 
that acknowledges that our practice really isn't just about us. We're not just meeting the dukkha for our own well-being. We're doing it for all beings, for the people whom are most close to us, our family, our friends, perhaps our colleagues. We do it for the people that we barely know, the people who work at the grocery store or our favorite coffee shop. Um, We do it for the people who sit in traffic next to us. We do it for the people that we don't see. We do it for the people outside of our direct communities. The ripple effects of this practice are beyond our understanding. And so if you'll join me just to sit quietly, you don't actually have to change your position if you don't want to. And if you'd like, you can put a hand on your heart or put your hands together We'll just take a moment to maybe even bring to mind somebody in your life. Maybe you've been holding them in your metta so far this past week. Maybe it's someone you've encountered here on the retreat. Maybe it's one of the creatures here on the land that you've encountered. take a moment to acknowledge that this practice is for these beings that are being thought of right now and for all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy and content. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. May all beings have ease in their life. So let's just sit for a little bit.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.